Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome back, everyone, to the 109th episode of Power Your Parenting Moms of Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. In this episode, I interview Jessica Leahy. Jessica writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Leahy is a member of the Amazon Studios Thought Leader Board and wrote the curriculum for Amazon Kids, The Stinky and Dirty Show. She lives in Vermont with her husband and two sons. Jessica's latest book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence, published by HarperCollins, will be released tomorrow, everywhere books are sold. In this episode, we dive into her new book. This is a very well-written book with engaging stories and loaded with useful information. We explore questions like, how has the pandemic affected drug and alcohol use by teens? What does alcohol and drugs do to the teenage brain? Does vaping impact the young person's brain? Is there a correlation between sleep and substance abuse? What risk factors make it more likely that a teen will abuse alcohol or drugs? We talk about tips for helping kids resist peer pressure, tips on how to talk to your kids about substance abuse, and we talk about how to tip the scales of addiction and what are the protective factors that outweigh risk. So welcome, Jessica. I'm so glad that you're here today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes, I know you're busy and your book is coming out actually tomorrow. Excellent. <laughs> I'm so excited. It's been a long time coming. We, uh, the book was actually done a while ago and then we just decided to delay it because of the news cycle was a little crazy and then COVID happened. And so it's been a long time coming. I'm very excited for it to be out in the world. Well, it's an important book and it needs to be out in the world. So, but let me ask you, what inspired you to write this book? A, lo- a couple of things, actually. Um, I come at this book both as an alcoholic. I have um, a, almost eight years of recovery myself. I come at this as a teacher. I taught for 20 years. I come at this as a teacher of kids in a rehab facility. So I taught for five years in a drug and alcohol rehab um, for adolescents. I, I did a little bit of everything with them, but nominally I was their writing teacher. And I come at this as the parent of two kids who have a genetic high, genetically higher risk of substance abuse during their lifetime. So for me, I needed the answer to the question, you know, when the experts say substance abuse is one is a preventable situation, what 
what does that mean? What is what does it mean that it's preventable? What works? What doesn't work? And I'm very fortunate in that I'm a big geek and I love the research. I happen to be married to a scientist, a statistician, and he uh, loves ripping apart research as well. And so the two of us just go at it and um, basically, you know, ask all those wonderful questions of, you know, is this reliable or is this myth? You know, what is this? So anyway, that's that's really where this book came from for me. Yeah, what I really liked about your book is, first of all, you are an amazing writer and you're very gifted in telling stories. And that first chapter about you is gripping. And like you said, you have some really good synthesis of research. And so I love that combination. So thank you. So moms, don't be afraid to buy it because you'll understand it. So it's very practical. For me anyway, my very favorite place to write is at the center in between memoir and research-based nonfiction. And Later on in the book, I um, there are two people who play a big part in this book. Um, their real names, by the way, are Brian and Georgia, and they both are young adults who struggled with substance abuse during their teenage years, and they both tell amazing stories. And I think, you know, we as human beings use stories in order to learn things from each other, and I love telling those stories, and especially when it has to do with, um, you know, just how amazing and resilient adolescents can be. Yeah, yeah. So how has the pandemic affected drug and alcohol use in teens? Well, I think number one, there's sort of what we know now and what I think it's going to take a little while for us to understand. Um, there are some really wonderful s- surveys that come out about once a, well, once a year. Uh, one of them comes out every August. It's called Monitoring the Future. And that one is a survey of just thousands and thousands of teenagers and their attitudes around drugs and alcohol, including their use and, and you know, in the past 30 days, what have you done, that kind of thing. Um, and I think we're, we have some good information that drug and alcohol use has gone up. We know that uh, alcohol use has gone way up in adults. Um, and I'm going to assume there is no pun intended a trickle down effect there. But when it comes to substance abuse and well, substance use and substance abuse and what happened during this year and also what is going to happen with the sort of mental health consequences of this year. I think it's going to take a couple of years for us to untangle that. I think we'll be sort of uh, learning as we go over the next two years or so um, what's happened with kids and what what they used in order to cope, um, how their coping mechanisms worked or didn't work for them this year, and how many supportive adults they had around them in order to help them sort of deal with their emotions. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So I loved your chapter three, the wired for risk, and Mm -hmm. you did a great job of packing that with great information. So what do alcohol and drugs do to the teen brain? And I'm going to throw in vaping also. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think of vaping in there, even though, you know, it, it... even though people tend to throw it in its own category, it's very much in there. And I hate actually even having to say drugs and alcohol because alcohol is a drug as well. Um, So what what it's important to understand about the teen brain is that the teen brain and the the brain of a kid who's like, you know, just born to about two years old, those two periods of growth and development um, are just their brains are what are known as plastic. They're acutely sensitive to things in the environment, to substances. And 
things that would not have really much of an impact in terms of harm on an adult brain can have a lot of harm and can do a lot of harm in an adolescent brain or that of a zero to two-year-old. So when we talk about these periods of growth and we say, you know, there is no safe amount of alcohol in, for example, a pregnant mother, and we wouldn't think of giving alcohol to a zero to two-year-old, although uh, in the history chapter, you see that has not always been the case. <laughs> um, uh, but in the same sense that we wouldn't do that with a really little kid or, you know, a gestating mom, at the same time, introducing drugs and alcohol into the adolescent brain brings with it really particular risks. Um, adolescent brains, not only do adolescents consume alcohol differently, um, they don't tend to, they tend to binge drink more than they tend to drink a little here and a little there. That has a very specific impact on the body and the brain. But for example, there are little things, not little things. There are specifics such as, you know, the, um, the hippocampus, which is the seat of memory and processing, especially emotional memory, is smaller in chronic users of marijuana um, in adolescence. So, you know, whether that's a case of correlation or causation, you know, there we know that the kids who do who use a lot of pot have smaller um, hippocampi, and they also have issues with how the nerves talk to each other. Or how anytime we have synapses fail to talk to another synapse, those synapses don't continue to survive. And so when we throw things into the mix, chemicals into the mix that prevent synapses from talking to each other, that prevent the, the, the reconstruction of the brain and how it's wired uh, during adolescence, we mess with it. And the worst part of that is there's no going back. Once that door closes at the in the early 20s um, of maturation and cognitive development, it's not like we can go back and clean up the things we missed during adolescence. So I, the thing I want parents to know going into this book is I'm absolutely not one of those people who's going to say, you can have no alcohol in the house. And there's no, you know, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about use that would be pretty risk-free in an adult just isn't so in an adolescent brain. So uh, that's the main point I would like people to take away from this, that the brain is really delicate during that period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I heard someone say, it's like, um, like the teenage brain is like a house without a roof on it. Mm -hmm. So it's just not protected. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love that. I hadn't heard that one. It's, it really is a, an amazing time. The amount of stuff that's going on every second in the adolescent brain in terms of cognitive development, just it's incredible to me. Yeah. Yeah. So can you talk about the correlation between sleep and substance abuse? Yeah, so not only does do substances have an effect on sleep, um, it has this horrible self it does this horrible self perpetuating thing. In me, it had a really clear correlation. So I was a teacher. I had to wake up at like five thirty, six o'clock in the morning in order to be at school on time, and I also suffer from anxiety. So I drank in order to medicate my anxiety, <clears throat> and in the short term alcohol works so great to put me to sleep, right? You have a couple of glasses of wine, you feel a little drowsy, you fall asleep. Unfortunately, um, alcohol 
doesn't work in the long run as a good sleep aid because it it tends to wake you up. It it disrupts your sleep cycle. So inevitably around three o'clock in the morning, I would wake up having a panic attack or having an anxiety attack about the fact that I drank too much and about the fact that I really need to get back to sleep because I need to wake up in two hours. And so it was this horrible self-perpetuating cycle of feeling like I needed it in order to cope with my anxiety and go to sleep. And yet it was causing more anxiety. Um, There's this really cool sort of bi-directional statistic that kids who get more sleep get sufficient sleep. And by the way, in general, our kids don't get enough sleep, except I have to say the pandemic has been, if there have been any good takeaways, it's been that kids have been getting more sleep. They've been getting much more sleep than they were pre-pandemic. Kids who get more sleep are less likely to have issues with drug and alcohol and kids who have used drugs and alcohol are more likely to have sleep disturbances. So, you know, there's there's some bi-directional issues there that we need to think about. But um, like I said, it works. Some, drugs and alcohol can work great in the short term to initiate sleep, but not often work well to keep sleep going and can make uh, sleep problems worse. Yes, yes. What risk factors make it more likely that a teen will abuse alcohol or drugs? So when we talk about risk factors, I tend to talk in terms of like one of those old timey scales of justice where on one side is risk and on the other side is protection. And so the heavier your child's individual risk for substance abuse, um, the more protections you're going to heap on. And the thing I do not want is for a parent to feel guilty or shame. I mean, if I were to just get stuck on the fact that I feel a lot of guilt over the fact that my kids have a higher risk for substance abuse during their lifetime because of their genetics, I'm just going to get stuck and I'm going to feel bad about myself and it's not going to help anyone. If we realize that some of the risk factors are things that commonly happen in the course of human life, for example, divorce and separation, then we can hopefully come at that from a, from a feeling of, okay, well, I have this information and that is empowering to me. So now I know what I need to do with my protections. So starting with genetics, that's about 50 to 60% of the picture. So my kids automatically have a higher risk of substance abuse. They get it from both sides of our family, my husband's family and my family. We have Uh, drug users and alcoholics on both sides of our family. So that is a starting place for conversation that I use as a plus. I think that's great because we automatically have to have a lot more conversations and more specific conversations than a family with no risk. Um, On top of that, then we need to talk about trauma, um, big T and little t traumas. Like, for example, adverse childhood experiences such as, um, you know, violence in the home, childhood sexual abuse is one of the biggest risk factors for for substance abuse. Physical abuse, neglect, having an addict in the home, having someone who's uh, suffering from addiction in the home. There's all kinds of sort of, quote, official adverse childhood experiences. Um, You can take your own ACEs quiz, adverse childhood experiences quiz. If you Google CDC and ACEs quiz, go take it. It's on a, you get a number from one to 10. The higher your number, the higher your chances of having substance use disorder and the higher your chances of all kinds of negative outcomes like uh, cardiac disease, strokes, all sorts of negative health and mental health issues later on in life. If you'd like a much more uh, comprehensive list, you could pick up Nadine Burke Harris's book, The Deepest Well, where she talks about how she saw ACEs impacting her pediatric um her pediatric practice in California. She's just amazing. She's now the Surgeon General of California. And uh, her take on 
ACEs is much more expansive than the CDC's take, but that's a big issue. Early learning issues, early aggression towards other children, um, social ostracism. There are all kinds of things that if we can get early intervention for so many of these um, stresses and traumas in kids' life, then we can really actually um, make that prediction that substance abuse is preventable. We can actually make that be true. But it, a lot of it requires us to be realistic about what's what um, our kids' risk factors are and um, have allies on our side, like our kids' healthcare provider, our kids' um, administrators at school, our kids' school counselor, our kids' school nurse. There's so many allies out there that can help us get early interventions for kids. Yeah, yeah. And also, teenagers are wired almost for drug abuse and alcohol because of their yeah. quest for dopamine. Yeah, so there's actually, you know, we, we tend to talk about um, substance abuse being a brain disorder, and, and that is true. There's sort of camps in the substance abuse world, the substance abuse and recovery world, that it's a brain disorder, that it's a trauma um, reaction to trauma, that it's a developmental disorder. And I love this description of it as a developmental disorder because very few people start using drugs and alcohol end up that end up having problems with them. Very few of them start in adulthood. 90% of people who have substance use disorder during their lifetime start before the age of 18. And when you talk about this quest for dopamine, I think that's so important to understand that adolescents have lower levels, lower baseline levels of dopamine than young children and adults. So when you're, when your adolescent is like, oh, I'm so bored. They're not being drama queens and kings. They're actually probably bored because dopamine is at its drive. It's at the seat of human motivation. So for adolescents, you know, who are very rightly seeking independence, seeking what's called individuation, trying to become their own people, seeking out novelty, which of course is what you want in someone who's trying to figure out who they are as an adult. We want kids to seek out novelty. Kids, adolescents also tend to seek out risk because that, you know, sort of boosts adrenaline, boosts dopamine. It's obviously often novel. Um, the way we can sort of best help them with that is by pointing them in the direction of positive risk. There are lots of ways. Um, for example, when we moved from um, one state to another, and it was during a period of transition for my younger son going from middle school to high school, that's a really dangerous year of transition when it comes to substance use. And I was freaked out. I'm like, great, I've just thrown this huge risk factor in my kid's path um, right when he doesn't need it. And I was talking to Dr. Dan Siegel, who is a very famous um, writer, author. He's written, you know, Aware and Mind Shift, and he's just fantastic. He said, you know, I think you're thinking about this wrong. You could be thinking about this in a much more optimistic light. Thank goodness for Dan Siegel. And he said, you know, why not think of this entire move as one big opportunity to seek out positive risk. You've got to make new friends. You've got to get to know a new place. You've got to explore your environment around your new home where you live. All of those things feed an adolescent's need for risk and I think and for positive risk. And I think that much of my understanding risk and protective factors has come down to my own reframing of these things, of helping, uh, helping kids see the positive side, helping kids see the learning opportunities, helping kids see the opportunities 
in the things that are scary. Um, that's both for me and for my kids. So I think it's been those positive risks wherever we can find them. If we can help our kids, encourage our kids in those directions, it's going to be helpful. Yeah, I totally agree. I really love Dan Siegel also in his book, Brainstorm. Yes, but yeah, I love Brainstorm. And there's a kid in there, an adolescent in there, I believe his name is Benjamin in the book, actually. Um, he talks about this kid and, and helping the kid sort of integrate um, his mind at a time when, you know, adolescence is, is all about us, the kids attempting to integrate their, the lower brain and their upper brain. And Dan Siegel actually refers to substance abuse as a symptom, as a thing that's due to lack of integration in the brain. And so there are some wonderful tips from him in all of his books, but especially um, his most recent one, Aware, gives wonderful advice on helping kids integrate their brains. And some of that comes down to mindfulness techniques that, um, it can be tough. It can be a tough sell for adolescents, but I give a couple <laughs> ways in the book, hopefully, to make it a little easier. Right. Yeah, it seems like another risk factor, I think, is the rise of anxiety in teens mm -hmm. and pressure and stress, especially with um, adolescent girls. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the girls that I talk to um, are starting to use alcohol as a way to manage their anxiety. Mm -hmm. So they'll go into parties or they'll go mm -hmm. on dates using alcohol as a way to feel more quote relaxed. Right. Have you seen that? Well, I can tell you right now that the drink I miss most now that I'm sober is always the drink I would have at home as I'm getting ready so that I could feel slightly less social anxiety when I go to that event. You know, there's that, am I good enough? You know, am I an imposter? That whole idea of liquid courage of, of using that in order to make ourselves feel better about who we are. And, you know, it wasn't until I stopped drinking and didn't have that, um, that I actually had to address what the heck my problem was that I didn't feel enough going in. And it's also really, it wasn't until I quit drinking that my anxiety really got under control um, because I was, you know, medicating it in a way that wasn't particularly useful. Women do tend to um, use alcohol in order to deal with depression and anxiety and perfectionism. It's really interesting. When I started going to 12-step meetings, I started meeting a lot of women that I never expected to meet there. Women who, you know, really wanted to be everything to everyone and never felt like they could do enough or be enough. And that was a really interesting moment. I thought I was alone in that. I thought when I started going to 12-step meetings that I was going to run into a lot of sort of the drunk in the gutter, but as Stephen King, another person who is in recovery, as the author Stephen King says, we all look about the same when we're puking in the gutter, no matter what our background <laughs> is. So I know, I know I did. So yeah, I think it's really important to realize also at the end of the book in the chapter on college, I talk a lot there about risks associated with the reasons that people drink. People who drink in order to amplify happiness in social situations are less worrisome. There's a less risk there than people who are drinking in order to deal with their anxiety, depression, um, withdrawal from society, that kind of stuff. Um, that's a more worrisome situation. So talking to kids, not just about drinking and, you know, not, you know, not drinking and uh, that kind of thing, talking to kids about why people drink and when it's effective, when it's, uh, you know, that kind of stuff is, it's part of the subtlety around, you know, the, the discussion that so many people 
pose as just say no to that, you know, and just say no, uh, that doesn't really work. We have to give kids the ways to say no and help them feel empowered. It turns out that there's some great news, actually. It turns out that when we give kids refusal skills and uh, we do what's called inoculation theory, which is helping kids have feel like they have the ammunition that they would need to rebut certain arguments for why they should drink, why they should have premature sex, why they should you know, jump off this garage roof into the pool. Um, kids who have are sort of front-loaded with arguments for why they don't need to do those things are not only feel a higher sense of self-efficacy, they're more likely to use those refusal skills and they're more likely to talk to their parents about the use of those refusal skills. So it's like, it's this amazing, powerful thing. And it turns out that when we give kids ammunition against one risky behavior, for example, early sex, we also inoculate them against other risk behaviors. That 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 effect generalizes, the research shows. So it's a really powerful tool to give kids that those refusal schools or skills and give them what I still need, which is an exit strategy when, you know. Um, when I don't feel like I'm feeling particularly strong or I'm feeling a little tempted to drink or I'm just feeling tired, um, I need to have an exit strategy. And just having an exit strategy makes me feel more empowered. And so we need to help kids have that too. Oh, I love that. And that's so important. That is great. I love that you've been in education and that you're a teacher. And so you have experience and you also have the knowledge around this in terms of how does substance abuse in our teens and adolescents show up in academics? So it's funny you should talk about anxiety. I mean, among the kids, when I go speak at a school or now I guess virtually speak at a school, one of the things I do is I give my email to the kids and I ask them to email me and tell me what they want me to tell their parents because often I'll speak like during the day to the kids and then in the afternoon to the teachers doing professional development and then in the evening to the parents. And it's always more effective for me if I know what is on the kids' minds. And so I get email after email, just amazing emails from kids about the stress that they're feeling and what they feel like they're up against, especially right now, they're really worried about what comes next. And I know for a fact that I've had a bunch of parents come to me this year and say, you know, I think simply because my kid has been home more, I'm starting to see some things that I didn't see before and around anxiety or around depression or around, um, you know, change, changing behaviors. And really with, with kids, that's the name of the game. I start to worry when I see sudden change in behavior, sleep schedule, eating, that kind of thing. And I think all of this anxiety around kids. And by the way, clinicians, every clinician I talk to, um, I do this thing called the Parenting in Place Masterclass. And I work with a bunch of clinicians doing that. Um, Katie Hurley and Tina Payne Bryson, who writes with Dan Siegel, um, they are seeing just an enormous amount of anxiety from kids, more anxiety, more suicidal ideation, you know, lots. And, but the good news is the fact that they're seeing that means that kids are talking about it. And, you know, in, in, treatment circles, people talk about, you know, having to be able to, you have, you got to name it to tame it. You have to be able to name those emotions to tame those emotions. So I think in terms of 
kids and anxiety and kids and what they've been going through this year, talking about those emotions, talking about the fact that it is absolutely normal to feel scared, to feel anxious, to feel the feelings that you're feeling. I had a question, a fascinating question from an, a parent. Actually, last night I was speaking virtually in Los Angeles and a parent said that their child felt like she wasn't allowed to say this year has been really stressful and upsetting for me because she knows she's privileged. She knows that they don't have to struggle to make their mortgage payment. They don't have to struggle to put food on the table. And so she didn't feel like she deserved to have the emotions that she's having. And I think it's really important for us to help kids understand that if they're having that emotion, it is important not only that they talk about it, but that we back up that these are valid that they're allowed to feel this way. We are not discounting their emotions and that they're entitled to have the emotions that they're having, no matter what the context is. So as parent, as a parent, no matter how off the wall it may sound that my kid is feeling a certain way, I, I have to be able to validate that emotion and I have to be able to support them as they talk that out. That's been sort of my job this entire year as an educator and as a, as a parent. Yeah, yeah. So you talked about this kind of gift of refusal or teaching kids about refusal. So what other tips can you give to moms about helping them, helping kids resist peer pressure? So there's a whole chapter on peers, and it's actually one of my favorite chapters because it's a very personal chapter. Um, my son, Ben, who's now 22, met this kid, Brian, when they were in high school together. And Brian... Um, in very short order, got kicked out of got kicked out of his school. He had actually already been kicked out of one school. Got kicked out of my son's high school. Um, had to go do some stuff somewhere else. Was invited to come back. Got kicked out again. So my alarm bells are going off all over the place, right? Because we do know that what our kids' friends are doing is likely to influence what our kids do for better or for worse. And, and that peers who use is a very big indicator, a big risk factor for substance abuse. Although I was really concerned about that um, sort of line of thinking because it felt very black and white. And the topic the topic of friendship and how friends influence each other just isn't black and white. So one of the things I had to think a lot about with Ben's relationship with Brian, and one of the things Ben made very clear was he felt it was really important to continue to support Brian as he was going through recovery. And of course, as I said, I wanted him to run as fast as possible in the other direction. And I had to do, there was a lot of talking that happened over the next couple of years about Ben's relationship with Brian. There was a lot of examining what Ben was getting out of a relationship with Brian that was healthy. And what was he getting out of what was happening that was not healthy? What role was and I think this requires us to think a little bit beyond our own children and toward a more community-based perception of, of how we all help each other. What is my son's relationship with Brian doing to help Brian? And that was what Ben kept coming up back to me with was, I can't abandon him right now because we believe, and it was luckily my, my son had a, a, a group of friends that really was invested in helping Brian stay sober and continue to, they ran together, continue to compete. And from that perspective, having Brian as a friend was not acting as a risk factor for my son. It actually was acting as a protective factor. And that may not have always been the case and it may not be the case for every kid. And, and obviously that assumption was open to change at any time if I saw that suddenly the tables had flipped and suddenly Ben was being influenced in a negative way, I could have changed my, my tune around that. But I think it's really important for us to use 
conversations about our kids' relationships with their friends, not just as a way of talking about substances and risk, um, all kinds of risk, drunk driving and premature sex and all that sort of stuff, but as a way of talking about what role relationships play in our lives and modeling healthy relationships. Um, I love that one of the things I bring up a lot with my kids is that um, without my ever asking her to do this, one of my friends who's really invested in our relationship and is a good friend um, often will call ahead if we're going to a function to make sure that there are non-alcoholic options for me. And I never asked her to do that. She just does that because she loves me and she supports my sobriety. And someone, a friend who would undermine sobriety, my sobriety anyway, isn't someone that I can consider to be a true friend. So talking about those things with kids not only helps model for them um, relationships and, and response to substance abuse and use in their community and in their peer group, but also helps model um, you know, what relationships should look like, not just friendships, but romantic relationships. You know, my husband drinks like a normal person, but he all, we also don't keep open alcohol in the house. So if my husband doesn't finish something, he pours it out. And that's not just about, that's not him being, you know, a prude. That's not him being a teetotaler. That's him having some empathy for what it's like for me to know that there's an open bottle of something in the other room that might call to me from the refrigerator. So it's really important to model for our kids all kinds of healthy behaviors and peer relationships are part of that. Yeah, no, I really like that. And I think there's something in moms, especially I think moms who have like middle school kids that you want to mm -hmm. keep your kids away from the bad kids. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think middle, middle school relationships are so fascinating to me because it's right in that spot where relationships, the purpose of relationships are shifting. In elementary school, a lot of friendships are built on proximity. Um, our moms are friends. And so therefore we grew up as friends, that kind of thing. Middle school relationships start to shift towards, I would like to try out that aspect of that person's personality, or I'm fascinated by that person because they're different from me, or there's just all kinds of reasons that we make friendships in middle school that are different from why we made them in elementary school. And I'm sorry, I don't have the statistic on me right now, but a shocking, shockingly low number of middle school relationships endure past middle school. And so <laughs> if we are able to think of, yes, it is painful when they end, especially when they end in, in a negative way. But remembering that the relationships that are going to really endure start happening sort of after middle school. Um, and that's, to me anyway, when our kids take risks through relationships or try on aspects of their friends uh, in order to find out what they want and what they don't want, that's an opportunity for conversation. What is it you like in this girl? What, you know, she seems very different from all of your friends. What is it you find interesting about her? How, you know, I find, I realize that when you come home from her house, you're usually a little on edge. What is that about? Does she, something about her make you nervous? Or I realize that when you come home from so-and-so's house, you really feel good about yourself. And I love that. What is it about that relationship that makes you feel so good about yourself? Having these conversations is a, is a constant ongoing process of helping our kids become who they're going to become often through their relationships. But yeah, middle school relationships, those are some tricky ones, tricky and transitory relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And we, and we think of good kids, bad kids versus all kids yeah. are experimenting. Yeah. Well, and I also, I mean, I was a, a, 
I had my eye on a seven-year-old, you know, I had, there was this one seven-year-old and he's acting risky and he constantly has a broken bone and he throws himself off of high places. And I'm like, I need to keep my kid away from this kid. And they, and he was seven, <laughs> he was seven. But at the same time, that kid did end up being a big risk-taking kid. And that kid did end up getting into some trouble with some substances, but at the same time, having the conversations about the fact that this kid, he built a, and I adore this child, but he's not a child. He's a man now, but this kid had built a luge run in his woods through the trees with banked sides and everything. So they could get as much speed as possible for, through the turns. And, you know, that kind of stuff, I was able to say to my son, so what are the chances, you know, you're going to take the luge run and, you know, what are the chances you'd wear a helmet while, do, you know, these are all conversations <laughs> that we have that don't necessarily have to be, you will spend no time with this kid because we know that doesn't work. You will mm -hmm. spend no time with this kid that PS, you ride the bus with every single day and you see in school every single day and you're on the same soccer team with saying you can't be friends with this kid is just not going to work. So we're going to have to come up with an alternate way of talking about relationships that's uh, supportive and actually works. Yes. What I like about your book is you talk about having, giving moms tips about having more open-ended conversations mm -hmm. and not having that, those like closed-ended conversations yeah. like you are not going to do that. <laughs> well, what's so interesting to me is, like I said, when I give kids my email address and I ask them to email me and tell me what they want me to tell their parents, often I get some iteration of, um, there's like a top three, but often one of the things I'll get is, you know, I actually do want to talk to my parents. I just don't want to talk to them about the things they constantly want to talk about. I don't want to talk about the SAT all the time. I don't want to talk about that <laughs> test next Friday. I don't want to talk about, I already know they don't like my friend, Lauren. I don't want to talk about that anymore. What I want to talk about is this thing. And the other thing they really want us to know is that they don't want us to give them all the answers. They're not expecting us to fix all their problems. Sometimes they need to talk their problems out. And as someone who I horrify my husband and my mother-in-law sometimes because my husband and my mother-in-law are the kind of people who don't say something until they have it fully thought out and they've really <laughs> weighed their options. I'll say like, you know, I think I'm going to go to the forest ranger school. That could be really interesting. And I don't really mean I'm going to go to forest ranger school. I'm just talking it out because it sounds cool. And it's taken my husband and I this year will have been married for 25 years. And seriously, it's taken him about that long to realize that sometimes I just want him to listen. And most often that's what our kids want from us. Oh my gosh. I was... I fell into that trap with my daughter and my daughter like has a million ideas. And like when she mm -hmm. was thinking about where she's going to go to college, I would just cringe. Like, I'm going to go to London. I'm going to yep. work at Starbucks in New York. I'm yep. going to like travel the world. And I would be thinking about how practically are you going to do that? <laughs> Well, and the best possible answer really for us is why? What's interesting about that to you in a non-judgmental tone? Because yes. half the time, and I know this is a teacher, for example, half the time when a teacher, when a kid raises their hand and wants me to come over and fix something for them or answer a question for them, what they actually need is for me to stand there while they figure it out themselves. And then they tell me to go away that they don't actually need me anymore. And then I'm like, okay, mission accomplished. I did what I was meant to do in that moment, which was just listen, talk about the why, um, it'd be a sounding board. Yeah. Yeah. So this is great. I love what you're saying. So what other protective factors can you give these moms? 
So the protective factors I think are number one, be open and clear about your own use slash abuse if that's an issue and think about, you know, your family history and start with your own family. And I, you know, that's unfortunately, I hate to say it, the hardest part of this whole thing, you know, coming to terms with my own use and abuse was really difficult, but if we hope to have any standing with our kids, we have to be thinking about that. Number two, have allies. And when I say allies, this is especially for, you know, single parents, for people who just feel like they're pulling, doing this on their own. There are allies if you look for them, um, school counselors, school nurses, administrators, teachers, pastors, coaches, so many amazing mentors out there. And the research on, men, on this is really clear is that no matter what the risk factors are for kids, if they have one adult in their corner being supportive, they are more than likely to be okay. And that one adult theory is so powerful and it has to do with people who will give them hope, people who will help them be optimistic. I beg people to read all the time. Um, Martin Seligman's The Optimistic Child. Um, there are some wonderful, wonderful books out there about hope and how to help help kids be more hopeful because hope is this incredibly power thing. It's powerful thing. It's a combination of optimism and feeling like you have the tools and the self-efficacy in order to make the future better. Um, being the kind of person who instills that in kids, that's one of the most powerful things we can do. When we look at allies, by the way, I, I think a lot of them, a lot of people get overlooked. A child's primary care physician can be one of the most powerful people out there for you because often many of them are doing these uh, screenings for high-risk behaviors anyway. So give your kids some space at their doctor's appointment. Let them fill out that screening tool. It's usually on a tablet with you not looking over their shoulder. They need to be able to answer those questions honestly. Um, they're not answering these questions in a way to make you look good or make you feel like you're a better parent. They need to answer them honestly because your child's physician, family medicine, um, you know, pediatrician, whoever that healthcare provider is, uses that screening inf information in order to gauge whether they need to do brief interventions or refer for treatment. And so give your kids some space, let them answer those questions honestly. And if you're not sure if your pediatrician or healthcare provider, other kind of healthcare provider is doing any kind of screening, I give acronyms in the book that you can listen for, like SBIRT or um, there's a whole bunch of different ones. Um, but those those screening tools are really powerful, and it is a known fact throughout the uh, the primary care um, uh, profession that using these screening tools helps uh, helps keep kids on the right track and helps save lives. Great. So, any last words of wisdom for these moms who are listening? I have to say, going back to my the, the talking I do a lot for Gift of Failure, the two most important pieces of information um, that I have for parents, and this mostly comes from the questions, the comments I get from kids, which is two things. We have to love the kids we have and not the kids we wish we had. Mm. Um, the number one comment I get from kids is, um, please tell my parents, I am not my brother. I am not my sister. I am not my parents' do-over. I am not my parents when they were my age. I am not some imaginary kid my parents thinks they're, they're raising. I am me, and I just want to be seen and known for who I am. So number one, raise the kids we have, not the kids we wish we had. And number two, we can't just love them based on their performance. Um, performance-based love, outcome love, withdrawal of love based on performance is emotionally one of the more 
painful things we can do for kids. And it's, and the way we don't do that, the way we get around doing that is by focusing more on the process of raising our kids to be competent, effectual adults and pay a little bit less attention to the end products, to the trophies and the scores and the grades and those those indicators that everything is going pretty well because that process actually is where it's the secret sauce. And it's also going to help them believe us when we say that what we really care about is the learning, that they're constantly learning and trying to do better next time and modeling that for our kids. I mean, every time I learn something new, you know, honestly, for my kids, that something, it has changed this book, writing this book has changed the way I parent my kids. And my younger kid thinks it's entirely unfair that I had a more permissive attitude towards alcohol with my older child. But all I can say to him is, look, all I ever can want from you or ask of from you is that you learn from the people around you, the things you read and from your mistakes. And that's what I'm doing here. I made some mistakes the first time around with your brother and I wouldn't be a good parent if I didn't learn from mistakes and implement those changes and those things that I learned um, as I'm parenting you. And so that's all I can ever ask from you is that you do the same, learn from your mistakes and try to do better next time. I think your openness and your vulnerability to your kids is so empowering for them too. I think that's great. I hope so. I think, I think there's a lot to be said for when parents, actually when journalists asked me how I was parented, thinking that that's going to give them some insight into sort of what I do as a parent, the best things I can say about my parents, I had such fantastic parents, but the best thing I can say about them is that they trusted me to make good decisions. And I responded by trying to make the best decisions I could make based on that trust. And so I think if we were to trust in our kids a little bit more to make good decisions and have some competence, I think that would go a long way towards getting them to trust us a little bit more too. Right. So I just want to remind you moms, we've been talking to Jessica Leahy and she has a new book coming out tomorrow, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. And I'm sure these parents can find this book everywhere. Everywhere books are sold. And actually, if you go to jessicalahey.com, I'm working with a couple of local independent booksellers who um, I go in there and I sign, I'll be signing and personalizing copies and they'll be shipping for free. So if you go to jessicalahey.com and you want a signed copy, you can actually even get one there. Wonderful. And if someone wants to contact you, would they go through your website? Just go through the contact form on my website. I see all of those emails. So absolutely, that's a good way to get in touch with me. Well, thank you so much, Jessica. This information is so practical, helpful, and real and empowering all at the same time. That's all I could ever want from my my work is that it empowers. I don't ever want to add to the shame and the burden of how hard it is sometimes to be a parent. I want to empower parents as much as possible. Well, my favorite guests are the people who have teens themselves and have done it because we just talk from a whole nother level. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wrote, I wrote gift of failure when my youngest was nine and my oldest was 14. They're now 17 and 22. And I have been working with teenagers for a long time and I just love them. I just love them so much because they're just some magical creatures. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter when my daughter was 15 and finished writing it when she was 20. Mm-hmm. So I definitely <laughs> live the book. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In the trenches. In the trenches. So thank you, Jessica, so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 
this concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms and Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give Power Your Parenting Moms and Teens podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere. You can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And you can always find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.